Hello and welcome to the 2022 Dublin Literary Awards Shortlist Podcast, presented as part of International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Jessica Trainer, And my name is Sean Hewitt. In this special podcast series, we will explore each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award, the winner of which will be announced on the 23rd of May as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council. Nominated by libraries around the world, the award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English, or translated into English, worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. In today's episode, we're looking at The Art of Falling by Danielle McLaughlin, nominated by Cork City Libraries in Ireland. Robert Ethan Locke was born in a small village in southwest Scotland in 1932. The story told was that his father was a coal miner and his mother a seamstress. These were facts he'd often pressed into service when describing his early life, though how much mining or sewing was done depended on whom one spoke to. His father, as a young man, had worked a summer in the mines at Moorkirk, but his family had a sheep farm near Priest Hill, where Robert spent most of his childhood. And his mother did makeshifts and petticoats, but mostly as a charitable effort for the local women's aid committee. Robert had one sibling, an older brother who died in a drowning accident as a teenager, an incident he could never be drawn to discuss. In interviews, he'd spoken about how he'd spent a year at the Slade studying fine art in his early 20s, then dropped out to travel to India and South America before settling in Cambridgeshire, where he married Eleanor. In 1968, they moved to West Cork. All of this Nessa had known from her undergraduate days, and none of it was what Eleanor wanted to talk about now. What she wanted to talk about was how badly Robert had treated her that time he disappeared for several weeks in 1972. This was also well known. Nessa had already heard it from Eleanor several times. Thanks for that, Sean. Um, I I really enjoyed hearing that uh, little extract because I think the the rhyme of St. Daniel's writing comes across so well. Um, and the reason I chose that extract is because this is this is uh, the story of of you know a woman and her interaction with a number of different. Uh, people from her past who have come to kind of destabilise her existence. But at the heart of it is this kind of artistic detective story. Mm. And we're trying to find out about Robert Locke and mm. Nessa is trying to do all of this research and and launch the acquisition of this fascinating sculpture, the chalk sculpture, which uh, seems to be this, this kind of uh, fantastic figure that just draws people in and people are drawn into the orbit of both this artist now deceased and this uh, fascinating chalk figure. Yeah, you do get that sense of kind of uh, a mischievousness uh, where it opens up this bit of mystery in the middle, the, the several weeks in 1972 um, when uh, Robert had disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um but there's also a sense um, in this book that this central mystery exists around um, Nessa's own 
family life and her own kind of difficulties navigating that too. So it seems quite multi-layered book. It's a really fascinating book about personal morality, um, which is something I think that we all struggle with on a kind of a low level in a day-to-day way. And and Daniel dramatises it so successfully here. Um, You know, so we meet Nessa and I I mean, I found myself identifying with her quite strongly and and empathising with her as a character, but she's by no means perfect. Um, And she has made mistakes in her past. Past. And while we feel for her, we can see how a lot of the challenges that she faces are due to knock on effects from there are kind of, you know, the carelessness with which we treat people when we're young and then comes back to bite us later on mm. in life. You know, this mm. is a wonderful exploration of that, which is teased out through a number of different really, really intriguing characters, including a woman called Melanie Dore, who, without giving too much away, turns up uh, to, to stake some sort of a claim to uh, Robert Locke's legacy. Right. Okay. So it's interesting these novels that focus on other artworks as well. In you know, um, kind of reminds me of something like the Goldfinch, Donna Tartt. You know, um, tracing the impacts of a central artwork on a list of characters around it. Um, Danielle's first book was short stories, right? This is her first novel, am I right? Yeah, it is. And I think she's having a wonderful time working on that larger canvas. Um, I mean, she asks so many questions. To go back to what you said about about the focus on art, there is a really, really interesting debate, which is very deftly carried in the novel. You know, it's not on the surface, but the novel left me thinking about it around ownership of art Mm. Um, and also morality and art. And, you know, you look at the, the personal ethics of the person who created an artwork and does that bleed into the artwork itself or can we separate Mm. the artwork and the artist Um, so she's very kind of playfully and cleverly and and quite um, sneakily almost in a way kind of inserts all of these different ideas into the work but it's also lightly worn and I think that definitely comes from her skill as a short story Mm. writer Mm. because you cannot have these things foregrounded in a short story. They have to be very kind of carefully carried by the work and I think she manages to achieve that really beautifully here. Fascinating. Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing the conversation. So this is me chatting to Danielle McLaughlin, author of The Art of Falling, which has been nominated by Cork City Libraries in Ireland. Hello, Danielle, and welcome to the Dublin Literary Award podcast as part of International Literature Festival Dublin. And I'd like to start off just by congratulating you on your shortlisting for the Dublin Literary Award for The Art of Falling, your debut novel. Um, It's really exciting and I'm so glad you could join us here today. Um, So, you know, there's so much I want to chat about about this book. It's a book of so many layers and so many different fabulously interconnecting themes that seem to kind of telescope out in a really fascinating way. Um, But one of the things I kept coming back to was the notion of the book as an exploration of art and inspiration and ownership. Um, And these themes extend to the relationships in the book, but also there's a wonderful, enigmatic, charismatic character, um, Robert Locke, a sculptor who kind of makes his uh, presence felt throughout the book. Um, And uh, the characters all kind of interact with his artistic legacy in one way or another. Um, Where did the idea of a sculpture and a sculptor come to you and how did that become so central to the book as it developed? Well, the the main piece of sculpture that Robert Locke makes um, in the book is a piece called the chalk sculpture. And I can remember exactly 
when and where that came to me. It was all the way back in 2012. And I was at a workshop with Nuala O'Connor at Waterford Writers Weekend. And it was a fabulous workshop. And one of the exercises we did in the workshop was we got, we each got a prompt, a physical object that Nuala gave us. And mine was a little piece of broken pottery. And I, I can still remember holding it in that workshop on that day. And it was kind of white and chalky and the edges had been softened. And I, I held it and maybe it was also um, the setting, you know, near 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 the coasts in, in Waterford. Um, water but a, a story started that day that involved women and conflict and a remote setting and essentially what became the chalk sculpture. Yes yeah that's so fascinating and I, I've been thinking a lot about the book about the idea uh, of art that's created to disintegrate in a way which is a notion that's explored and for those who've yet to read the book um, there is an acquisition of this sculpture that's going on and an argument about whether the sculpture should be preserved or whether it's something that's supposed to degrade in a kind of a naturalistic way um, and that brings me on to, to how uh, the art themes chime with the relationships in the novel um, and there's a wonderful exploration of friendship and female friendship at the heart of this book which ties a little bit to the notion of things gradually breaking down and I was struck so much by the idea of our, our youthful carelessness and how that then maps onto our later life and can you talk to me a little bit about the, the female friendships in the book and how they're explored? Yeah, so I think... I I like that phrase you use, our, our youthful carelessness, because, um, you know, I can I can think back on elements of my own youthful behaviour now and think, oh, gosh, you know, I, that was really quite terrible of me. That was probably hurtful, but not have meant it at the time. And at the same time, it's in the past and I can't go back now and make it any different. And I think with Nessa, her past is impacting on her present a lot. I think she perhaps has clung to a version of past relationships, particularly maybe her, her past friendship with Amy. And she is forced to, to reassess the story that she tells herself about that friendship and about her actions. And this, I suppose, this having to confront the new, the changing narrative in relation to her, her own life and her friendships and the hurt that she might have caused. Um, I think it plays out alongside having to face a changing story about the work of a sculptor that she very much admired and that had perhaps she had perhaps placed on a pedestal for for a long time and accepted particular versions around of of the truth around the art that he made and she has to face up to changing narratives around that as well so I wanted her to be under pressure in both her personal life and her professional life because it interests me how characters behave under extreme stress. You know, I think if something is maybe going wrong in our personal life, but everything is smooth and comfortable in all other aspects of our life, well, then it's easier for us to 
to you know address the problems but when everything is going wrong at the same time it, it's interesting what what you know how people cope and the choices that they make under that kind of pressure it's, it's fascinating listening to you speak about that, Danielle, because one of the things I've been coming back to again and again in, in the novel is the notion of, of our kind of contemporary personal ethics and how we interact with other people. Um, but also the way in which we are reassessing the ethics, perhaps, and the, the personal morality of a character like Robert, uh, who I'd love to come back to in a minute. Um, but I, I was Wanting to ask you, I think there is a notion with with Nessa. I think we're very much, we're very much. I found myself very much on side with Nessa and identifying with her hugely. But she is forced to confront those carelessnesses that we spoke about, um, and the impact that her decisions have made on the new generation of her daughter and her friend Amy's son Luke as well. Um, and do you think there's something about maybe our contemporary liberal kind of post-religious world where we're having to kind of struggle our way? through defining our own moralities? NASA is definitely very flawed, I think. Um, I, I did like her and I was conscious when I was telling her story that I didn't want to punish her for being bad or reward for being good. I just wanted her to tell her story. And I think um, definitely there are many things about her that um, she, she has to be held answerable for. She, she did some, some bad stuff and she did cause hurt. I, I suppose one of the things I wanted to explore was how she is perhaps viewed as she goes about trying to solve the problems because she's solving not just the problems caused by her own mistakes, but she's also trying been left really to sort out a lot of problems. So yes, um, she has to be held accountable for some stuff and she does have a duty to try and put what she can right. She doesn't get maybe the the credit that she deserves for also keeping other people's lives on the road. And, you know, she's quite a survivor, I think. And I think perhaps she's not an entirely likable character, but then I think, you know, she she takes account of her own interests as well as other people's when she's sorting out a problem. And I certainly didn't want to punish her for that or to make her a martyr in any way for that. Absolutely. And I just got the sense the whole way through of uh, the, the word entanglement kept coming to me. You know, every time she passes a situation uh, which, you know, many of us would like to, to just keep walking and go, OK, that's not my problem. Somebody will reach out a tentacle and try and drag her into it, you know. And I think that she does during the course of the novel step up to a great degree past where many of us would go um, and and try to kind of solve some of these issues. So I, I, I would agree with you. I've, I identified with her quite a lot without feeling that she was in any way perfect. And her reactions and interactions were, were very fascinating to me. And it was one of the things that really kept me engaged throughout the novel. Um, but just to go back and kind of compare, I suppose, her her own way of living, again, with the, the figure of Robert Locke. Um, one of the bits that I enjoyed so 
so much in the novel or one of the, the, the parts of the novel I enjoyed so much was how uh, I suppose the glamour around Robert is kind of stripped away throughout it and we see some of the um, I suppose the less savoury sides the less glamorous sides of what it is to be an artist um, did you enjoy that process of kind of um, uh, I don't want to say demolishing Robert but you know uh, I suppose giving us a more clear eyed view of the reality of what it meant to be a male artist perhaps in that time well you know have so after the book was written and maybe even you know after the book was published I think it was only then that it occurred to me that actually I had anger in me maybe about the art world and I I wasn't really aware of that as I was writing it you know it wasn't that I was going oh I'm going to express my anger about the art world in this book but it was only afterwards that I kind of thought gosh yes you know I, I am a little bit disappointed perhaps at the art industry and I think that's that came out in the novel um Shortly after I finished the novel, I wrote a short story and it turned out, you know, similar themes came up in the short story. And I thought, okay, there's something going on here. So I think maybe it has to do with the fact that I I came to the arts relatively late in life. So I worked in other sectors, um, did other things for, for decades before I became a writer. And I had no background in the arts. My family had no background in the arts. And I would have thought of the arts as this very kind of um, sort of a, a place of enlightenment, I suppose, where people were... Um, they were smarter and they had they thought deeper thoughts and after a while in in the art sector i think um i realized okay that's that's not actually the case and you know the artists are just the same as as other human beings and in fact there were a lot of problems within the arts industry and sector that actually were maybe worse um, than other areas that I had worked in. So I was slightly disillusioned, I think, about about some things. And I think that made its way, um, made its way into the book. Well, it was one of the aspects I just found so refreshing and without giving too much away, I think the final nail in the coffin uh, for Robert coming in the guise of an attempted story <laughs> that he's written, just I, I adored that moment so much. You know, I thought it was lovely just to see, again, all of that glamour um, stripped away and what, what is left after it, um, not only in a judgmental way, but just in the terms of, yes, we are all human beings and we are all frail and flawed. Um, but I'm really fascinated fascinated as well by the figures of Eleanor and Loretta, um, who are uh, Robert's uh, wife and daughter, respectively, um, who are still living and, and play a large part in the book. But I'm just intrigued by the notion that they, you know, again, you approach their relationship to Robert with great complexity and insight in that they're both benefiting from his legacy, but also imprisoned by it to some extent. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Yes, so in a way, I think they are clinging to versions of a story as well. And I think they have invested so much emotionally and mentally over the years in Robert Locke and in their relationship with them. And 
in the life that they came they came to lead i suppose um because of him that i think they fear that if his legacy is dismantled now that there will be nothing left and not just for him but that there will be nothing left um, for them also because i think they gave so much of their life to his art um his persona his story and 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 i don't want to you know um get into any spoilers or anything, but I think uh, there's so many levels, I think, on which um, their lives are in, entwined with, with his legacy. So they, it's, um, I suppose it's, yeah, complex and maybe a bit, a bit troubling, um, I think, to look at the lives of these women, because in a way, I think, um, Robert Locke took so much from them, you know, I can't help wondering what sort of lives they might have had in other circumstances. Mm. And I think it's a fascinating dynamic and I think we see it in, in many areas of society when people have sacrificed a huge amount to build a certain edifice. The notion of it then coming down is very difficult, you know, even even if there's a mythology there that, that everybody would benefit from losing, um, it becomes easier to just kind of support that narrative. Um, and I, I just think you explored that with such deftness in this. I really enjoyed it. Um, but there's a wonderful question at the centre of the novel around artistic ownership. Um, and just kind of two general questions on that. Do, do you think that a piece of art can ever truly be owned? What's your own take on that? Oh, um, that's that's a tricky one. I think if the art is good, it's going to engage people on a very personal, very individual level. So it's going to mean different things to different people. So. In a way, um, what, what, how we see it may not be how other people see it or how we see it now may not be how it's viewed in 50 or 100 years time. Um, I think there, like, it's a tricky area because there's a piece of art and then there's the meanings that people ascribe to that piece of art. And there's the story that builds up around the piece of art. And sometimes these might have nothing at all to do with the intention of the original artist. You know, the interpretation that people can give to a piece of work might be entirely different to what was inside the head of the person who made it? And there is the whole question, does, does that matter? You know, what is the piece of art? Is it the ideas that people form around it, the conversations that people have around it? And is that how the art lives um, for people? Or is there something that goes to the core of the thing that was made first day, the intention of the person who made it? And, you know, I. I don't know what what the answer to that is, because one of the I suppose one of the best things about art is the way that it communicates things and it connects and it starts conversations and it has people seeing things in in different ways. So if the meaning that we ascribe to a piece starts lots of those conversations, um, there can be a lot of good in that, too, even if it's maybe not what the original artist um, intended. 
And it's fascinating. I think you really do explore that in the novel in terms of the way that, you know, the discourse is seen as a kind of a generative thing. But once people start to take hard lines on what the art is and what it should do, that's when the friction in the narrative starts. Um, and, and one of the, the wonderful uh, characters in the in the novel who introduces a lot of dramatic tension and I kind of found myself both dreading and longing for her to enter the scene again is the figure of Melanie Dore, who's fascinating. Um, tell me a little bit about how she, she came to be. You know, I can't remember the exact moment that she walked into the story, except I do think that the essence of her was there from from the very beginning in the sense of conflict. Um, I think she's someone who is different. And because she's different, people tend to um, maybe not give what she says the same credence um, they would give if it was coming from someone else. So she is quite an odd, eccentric character in lots of ways. But, you know, that doesn't mean that she's wrong. So there is the question of does the way that we view somebody, um, does that affect the, the weight that we give to their words, to what, what they're telling us and how much of what we take from a story that someone tells us, um, how much of our interpretation of that is affected by um, the opinion we have beforehand of this person based on the fact that maybe they're not like us or they're different. Um, Maybe they're difficult. I think Melanie is someone who is, she is um, difficult in some ways and, and I like that about her. Um, I think Melanie is is a wonderful mix of of eccentricity and vulnerability, um, and I think we really we we do start to understand her as the narrative progresses. And you know, there are a number of of, of truth tellers in the narrative. Um, you know, there's the the off the off screen character of Greta, who introduces a lot of chaos um, via. Amy's son Luke, um, but there's also Melanie. Um, but it's intriguing the way that these these um, pieces of information that are potentially damaging to people are introduced and and maybe rejected. And yet there is something there is something kind of revelatory about them, and there is something cleansing about them. I feel throughout the narrative. Yeah, the I suppose the past intrudes in different ways, and um, truth does intrude and I suppose there is the question is truth always helpful and do people always need to hear all the truth and I'm not sure that I have an any answer to that because there is no avoiding the fact that sometimes the the truth hurts I think Absolutely. But it also makes for a very good story um, and a really gripping one. And I think, you know, I, I, what I really admire about this is, is you know, the stories of the friendship that unfolds, but also that parallel story of the art. And, and just to go back again, was there was there a reason that you chose, um, apart from obviously that inspirational moment at Waterford Writers Weekend and that wonderful little tactile um, piece that inspired the chalk sculpture, um, was there a reason you decided to explore visual art rather than, say, perhaps the notion of a prestigious writer? Well, I love to look at visual art and I love to look at sculpture. I love them and I'm drawn to them, but I have no talent for them. So 
I, I did art for my leaving cert and I passed it, but only because I was able to write about art, you know. So any of my attempts at drawing or painting would have been terrible. So I really, really enjoyed, I think maybe it was, well, I won't say my favourite part of the novel because I was very invested in Nessa and, and her complexities, but I did also really love creating a body of work for the fictional sculptor Robert Locke, because for me that was a way, it was really a way, it was a way of making sculpture without um, having to, to physically make it. So I was able to create these pieces and I knew in my head what these pieces looked like. And it was great to, to create them, I suppose, on the page and to say, yes, he made this and he made this and he made this. And, and I knew what they all looked like. Um, so that was a way of um, being a sculptor for me. Just a great fun of being able to create all, all these pieces. And that is the fascinating potential of literature, isn't it? To be able to bring us to those places. And I found myself just completely convinced that we were undergoing this kind of detective work. Um, and I really enjoyed in particular the moment where William Trevor pops up and a few other people like that, which just gave it such lovely roots in the real. Um, but just a few kind of general questions then to finish up, Danielle. Um, how did you find moving from the short story form into the novel? Uh, did you find that a kind of a liberating uh, experience working with a larger canvas or were there similarities that you didn't quite expect? Well, the novel took me a very long time to write and I, I've since written um, another novel and that, that has taken a much shorter period of time. So there was um, a lot to learn and many, many drafts. Um, one of the things I found about the novel that I hadn't experienced with the short stories was this rush when the, the novel came together for me. So with the novel, I had a period of about six weeks where I wrote a huge volume of work. You know, the story and characters had clicked into place and I was sitting down, I was writing thousands of words every day and it, there was just this rush and there was so much adrenaline and that was really, really wonderful. And I never experienced that with the short stories where it's more kind of almost surgically moving the words around, you know, in, in the paragraph with the short stories. But again, you know, I have to do a lot of drafts with short stories and I also had to do a lot of drafts with the novel, not as many, but I did end up doing an awful lot of them. And for example, I wrote the novel in first person um, first and then it all got changed to, to third person. So I had lots of big changes that, that got made. Yes, and I think, you know, one of the things I've really enjoyed about the novel as well, and I think you've done this with, with huge subtlety and skill, is, is is that potential to kind of jump forward and backwards in time and look at different situations through the eyes of different characters and revisit them and, and drip feed us a little bit more information. Um, did, did that kind of come naturally to you or did you find yourself discovering more of the backstory as you as you developed the characters and wrote the story? Yeah, well, their their backstory did reveal itself little by little. It was something that I really enjoyed about writing a novel that I could actually engage with their backstory. That It's very hard to do backstory, I think, in a short story. So it was 
great to be able to look into aspects of my character's past because I'm interested, I suppose, in how the decisions that a character will make today, perhaps in relation to a very crucial aspect of their lives, they've been led to that decision by something that happened in their past. And it's great with the novel to, to be able to have these glimpses into a character's past so that we can see, you know, maybe this is what formed this person. This is perhaps some little hint of understanding as to why they maybe put up with things that a reader might say, well, well why are they putting up with this? And I think glimpses into their past can can illuminate a character, I think, and we can see how the past impacts on the decisions made in, in the present. And that it was one of the things I enjoyed so much was my, my journey as a reader of understanding from the beginning of the novel where we are are seeing one kind of particularly conflict ridden moment in, in Nessa and Philip's relationship, for example, and how our understanding of their relationship kind of changes and softens as we discover more about um, Nessa's past in particular. Um, and did you enjoy kind of exploring the complexities of that long term relationship? I did because, you know, they've been together so long that they both have a lot invested in this marriage. And I think facing problems in a very long relationship can be different to, you know, a problem in a relationship that, that has just started because there's less at stake. And I think Nessa has so many factors that she has to take into account in deciding what she's what she's going to do. No, I just I find it I do I do enjoy just seeing the, the complexities of those longer term relationships explored in that way because it is it is something that, you know, it's very easy to write something that's all kind of immediate high stakes and drama, but I just very much enjoyed my understanding of them and what works for them developing and, and how they relate to each other as characters. I became very invested in the two of them by by the end of the novel. Um, and just, I suppose, to finish up, Danielle, this is a question that I love to ask everyone that I interview for this. Um, because Dublin Literary Award is nominated by libraries, I always like to write, ask writers uh, a question about libraries and the impact of libraries on your career and development as a writer. The library has been crucial to me as a as a reader for years. So as a child, um, there was a great thrill to, to going to the library because even though I became a writer quite late, I was always a big reader. So um, I've always loved the library and Cork City Library has played such an important role because um, the library in Cork is always putting on events and very, very supportive of writers and readers. And last year, um, The Art of Falling was selected as Cork's title for One City, One Book. And that made a huge difference um, to me as a writer, having a book coming out at a time when the bookshops were, were all closed and when I couldn't have a real life launch and there was the impact of Brexit. So it was not a good time to have a book out, but it was wonderful the way that um, the library had 
online events and um, we made a film and there were all different ways in which my book was you know found its way into the hands of readers at a time when when the bookshelves were closed so it's very very important to me yeah they're magical spaces I think that we rediscover it many times in our lives but I think lots of us have that that childhood memory and that childhood connection um, and I think Cork is so much a part of the novel as well actually like most of us I've been stuck up in Dublin <laughs> or stuck in my home place in general for a long time but um, just I suppose one one last question around Cork in the novel um, d- did it feel important to you to have Cork be such a kind of a, a presence in the novel? Well, I've discovered that I like to write stories set in places that I know really well. Um, I find when I'm drafting something, even though lots of elements like character and plot might change, the setting that I start with tends to stay. So I think setting is kind of an anchoring thing for me. And I like to know really well the stage that I'm putting my characters on. And it's maybe a grounding element of the story for me. And it's also, it also makes it easier for me to tell the story because it's hard work making everything up, you know. So it's um, it helps when I know a place really, really well. And I can remember, for example, many times being in Fitzgerald's Park in Cork by the river and looking across to the opposite bank where there are these beautiful houses, gorgeous, large old houses, and they have gardens that stretch right down to the river. And so I put Nessa in one of those houses when I was writing the novel. And it was really great to to kind of inhabit this place that I had seen, you know, year in, year out, and now I could put my character in there. And I also had a really magical moment of research when I I went to Loch which is a place that features in the novel. And there's a kayaking trip that happens in the novel. And my family and I went out and we did that nighttime kayaking on Loch to see the bioluminescence and the moon was out and it was completely magnificent. Um, So I, yeah, that was possibly one of my favourite bits of research ever. Oh, that sounds fantastic. You'll have to do maybe Iceland or Saint-Tropez next. You know, you'll have an excuse to go for a wonderful trip. But uh, but no, I'm convinced now that Cork has it all and I'm pining for a visit to Cork myself after after reading it. Um, but listen, thank you so much for that, Danielle. That was just a really fascinating and illuminating discussion of your wonderful novel, The Art of Falling, which we would encourage everybody to go and buy or get from your local library. Uh, you will not regret it and you will enjoy everything. Every second. So thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2022 Dublin Literary Award winner announcement. You can read this year's shortlisted titles from public libraries around Ireland or borrow them as ebooks and e audiobooks on the free BorrowBox app. Plus, you can enter to win your own copies of the six shortlisted books by entering the giveaway running now through the 17th of May on ILF Dublin's social media channels. Wherever you're listening from, we invite you to join us for the online award ceremony on Monday the 23rd of May. You can book your ticket online for free 
at www.ilfdublin.com and browse the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.